I want to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word this morning. Join me in the book of Galatians once again as we continue walking our way through this important letter from Paul to a group of believers in the area of Galatia. And as we do that this morning, you're going to see in the outline that this is essentially the verses, not like verses in the Bible, but something versus something else. What Paul's going to do is he's going to outline for us, you have this versus this. And as we do that this morning, I thought it would be helpful for you to help me know what kind of audience I have this morning and ask you just a few questions, uh, two things, one thing versus the other, and that way we'll know where we sit this morning, okay? So uh, Coke versus Pepsi. How many of you are Coke fans? How many of you are Pepsi fans? All right, there you go. Now you know who you're sitting next to. Starbucks versus Dunkin' Donuts, and I don't want to hear anybody say, I can make coffee for seven cents at home. I don't want to hear that, all right? But you got Starbucks. How many Starbucks fans out there? Yep. Versus Dunkin'. Why would you not get a coffee with a donut, right? Come on. Here's uh, one that may uh, divide us a little bit. How many of you would say, I prefer sleeping with a fan or white noise on versus silence? How many of you want a fan or white noise? All right. How many of you are wrong? Oh, I'm just kidding, right? Just want the silence. Okay. Here's the last one, and this one is... uh, Here is where the rubber meets the road, literally speaking. So I don't know if you ever drive down 301 heading towards the interstate, needing to get on the interstate and head south, all right? Some of y'all are anticipating, you're ready. You're like, I was born for this. How many of you, when you approach something like that, don't answer just yet, there's two ways to do this. One is to get in line with everyone else, wait your turn, and get on to the exit. The other, my wife told me, is called zipper merging. And what you do in that is you stay in the lane right outside of the lane you actually need to be in, and you come barreling down turn right in front of somebody. If you have a North River sticker on your car when you do that. (laughs) So that's the zipper merge. So I'm just curious, how many of you get in line, wait your turn, get on the interstate? Okay. All right. Everybody's looking around. You're like, I'm taking notes this morning. I want to know. How many of you practice Straight from the, from the evil one. The zipper merge. How many of you zipper merge? All right, keep your hands up. I want you to keep your hands up if you zipper merge. Just keep them up. Wave them proud, right? Church family, I want you to, to look around. Keep them up. Keep them up. I want you, I want you to look around and to recognize why your insurance in the state of Florida is so high, all right? 
You know, it's interesting as, uh, as we think about things that we prefer over other things. What Paul's going to do in the text for us this morning is once again lay out for us this idea of law versus faith. Law versus faith. How is someone saved from their sin? How are we made right with God? Is it through the law, through the righteous deeds, or is it through faith? Law versus faith. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And I want to read for us Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, going through the end of the chapter, verse 29. And I want to encourage you to follow along in your copy of God's Word this morning. If you need a copy of God's Word, there should be some in the back of the seats in front of you. And I'd encourage you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you just take that home. Consider that our gift to you this morning. The text will also be up on the screen for you to follow as we work through it this morning as well. Paul writes, beginning in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer coming by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes so that we would be able to see. That you would open our ears that we would be able to hear. And that you would open our hearts and our minds that we would be ready to respond to your word and to your spirit, we ask all of this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. 
As we look at the text this morning, if you want to take notes, I'd encourage you to do that. Write down this main idea. It'll frame our time together as we look through these verses that we just read. And it's this truth. God's law does not provide the path to salvation. It simply highlights our desperate need for a Savior. God's law doesn't provide us a path to salvation by works. It simply highlights that there is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to save ourselves. We desperately need a Savior. As we've looked at the text this morning and as we've walked our way through the book of Galatians, we are reminded of what Paul's trying to do. Paul is writing to a group of believers who have had the false doctrine of a works-based salvation enter into the churches that are in this area. They've been told by some who've come in from the outside that you can be saved not by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's not enough. You need works along with that. For them in this moment, they were called the Judaizers. They were saying you need to follow the law of Moses perfectly. So you need Jesus plus the law. You need Jesus plus circumcision. You need Jesus plus following the customs and the principles that are laid out in the Old Testament. If you don't have both of those, you can't really be saved. And Paul, at each point, has reminded us of what the truth of the gospel is. That salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. None of us are competent in and of ourselves to save us from our sin by works that we do. You and I are in desperate need of a Savior. And Paul has reminded the believers here in the book of Galatians over and over of this truth. To drill it down deep in their hearts so that they understand and grasp it. And it changes the way they live their lives. So Paul here in these verses is anticipating what the charges are going to be brought against his teaching That Jesus is the only way that one can be saved from their sin. Parents, I don't know if you plan this way or not. I'd encourage you to do that. When your child begins to ask you a question about something, you need a response ready, don't you? So if they challenge something, if you say you need to go clean up your room, and they come in and say, well, you've told me that this is not my room, it's your room. This is your home. You need a ready response to that, which may include a spanking, right? Spare the rod, spill the child. But here what we see is that Paul is anticipating the Judaizers, those who are saying that it's salvation by grace through faith plus works. He's saying, I know what you're thinking here. And he is going to dismantle their argument using what we talked about just a bit ago. In verses 15 through 18, he is going to compare Abraham and the covenant God made with him versus Moses and the covenant that God made with him. So let's look beginning in verse 15. He says here, to give a human example. So as he's just talked about salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ in the preceding verses, he says, now let's have a conversation. Let me give you a human example, one that you would readily identify. He says in verse 15, even with a man-made covenant, 
No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So he's saying to this group of believers who's reading this, he says, let's just think about in your life personally, legally speaking, if you make a covenant with someone or you make a promise with someone, you can't later come back and change the terms of the deal. Some of you figure that out with your house when you purchased it. You can't go back and change the terms of those deals. You have to refinance. You've got to do something entirely new. And that's what he's saying here. He says that you can't annul or add to a covenant once it's been made. Notice verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to to one. So Moses, in this passage of scripture, he's going to compare Moses and the covenant of law that was given to Moses in Exodus chapter 20 back with the covenant that was made to Abraham in Genesis. And he's going to say this covenant that was made with Abraham preceded the covenant that was made with Moses, and you can't do away with this previous covenant. So he says here, The promises, the covenant was made with Abraham and to his offspring. Now, what was this covenant that God made? If you want to write in your Bible, this is a great place to do this. Genesis chapter 15 is where we see this covenant that God made with Abraham. And in this covenant that God made with Abraham, he says, Abraham, I am going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. All of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed as a result of you. And in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham, according to what the Lord says there, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the covenant that God made with Abraham was that he would bless Abraham as Abraham walked in relationship with him. And by faith, Abraham believed the promises of God. Well, what was this promise that Abraham believed? It was the promise that God made that a savior was coming. So at this point in time, what we recognize and understand is that Paul is saying to this group of Judaizers who would have claimed that Abraham was their father, he's saying to them, you don't even recognize the covenant that God made with Abraham. That God made a covenant with Abraham. And here's how the covenant worked out. Typically, there's two parties that ratify a covenant or ratify a promise or a contract. If you've ever had to sign your name to something, buying a car, buying a house, whatever it may be, You sign your name, and whoever's selling you signs their name. But when you look at Genesis chapter 15, the covenant that God made with Abraham, God makes the covenant ultimately with himself. In fact, what you see take place is that God says to Abraham, we're going to ratify this covenant, and what I want you to do, this is what they would have done in the, the Old Testament times, they would have taken an animal, some type of sacrifice, they would have cut the animal in half and laid it open so that there was a small pathway that you could walk in between it. And when people were ratifying a covenant, both parties would come and they would walk in between this split open animal Essentially saying, if I break my side of the covenant, may I be like this animal that was split in half. 
Genesis chapter 15, when God makes his covenant with Abraham by promise, it says that Abraham believed God. But I want you to notice that in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham and God don't walk between the split animal. In fact, the scripture tells us that God walks through the split animal himself. So that God looks at Abraham and he says, I am holding myself to this covenant. I will never change the terms of the covenant. I will never deviate from the covenant. Well, what is this covenant? It is a promise that God would send his son Jesus. It was the promise that a Messiah was coming. And so Abraham believed God, trusted that God's covenant would be fulfilled, that it would happen. We talked about last week that how are people in the Old Testament saved from their sins? It's not by keeping the law. It's by trusting that the Messiah is coming. So think about this in your minds. We have the privilege of looking back, of knowing that Jesus came, that he laid his life down. We know that. We are able to look back. If you're ever riding down a road, if you look out the front windshield of the road, you see what's coming. If you look out the rearview mirror, you see what has already passed you. And the reality is that is what we see taking place here. For Abraham, Abraham is looking out the windshield of the future. Looking and recognizing that this road ultimately leads to the Messiah coming, to Jesus Christ. We have the privilege to look in the rearview mirror and to see that Jesus Christ has come. It is through Him that we are saved from our sins. And here what we see Paul doing is saying, this covenant that God made with Abraham is not a covenant that is broken when the covenant comes that God makes with Moses in Exodus chapter 20 when the law is delivered. So he says here in verse 17, this is what I mean. Isn't that helpful in Scripture? You're like, I'm not... Sure what you're talking about. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward. So think about this with me. You have Abraham in Genesis 15. God makes his covenant with him. In Genesis chapter 26, God reaffirms the covenant with Abraham to his son Isaac. And then in Genesis chapter 28, he reaffirms the covenant with Abraham to his grandson Jacob. And then 430 years later, Paul says here, that is when the covenant came to Moses. That's when the law was delivered. So he says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promise void. So Paul is saying here, the argument that the Judaizers are coming in to Galatia and making is that you have to you have to keep the law to be saved. It's not just by grace through faith and what Paul says here is you have missed the mark because you have forgot about the first covenant that God made. He says in verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. 
So when we look at these two covenants, the covenant that God made with Abraham that was received by faith, when we look at the covenant that God gave to Moses, it doesn't annul the previous covenant that he made with Abraham. Now at this point in time, he's anticipating the next question. So he's looked and he said, okay, I know what you're going to say next. I know what your argument is going to be next. And he's going to do in this second truth here, faith versus the law. So if you're tracking along with me, faith versus, faith versus the law, verse 19 through 24, here's the question that he anticipates is going to be lodged against him. Well, if that's true, if it's the covenant of faith by Abraham, if that's what's really true, why then the law? It's a natural argument, right? If it's by faith, why bring the law into it? What's the purpose of that? So he's anticipating the argument of the Judaizers saying, well, then why did God give the law? If it's by faith, why did the law come? He says here, it was added because of transgressions or because of sin until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. An intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. He's looking here and he says, the reason that God gave the law was to show every single human being on the planet that they are a sinner. Why did God give the law in Exodus chapter 20? To show people that they are sinners. For us to recognize. It's not hard at times to recognize that, right? I mean, listen, we saw how many hands went up about zipper merging, right? It's not hard to recognize that there are sinners among us. And the reality is, (laughs) my wife tells me, you just need to know it's legal. It's legal. But it doesn't take us much to recognize that we are all sinners. And that the law, as we've said previously, simply functions as a mirror in our lives to show us our sinfulness. To show us our desperate need for a Savior. And that's what Paul says here to the Judaizers who would ask the question, well, if it's by faith, if that's the covenant that truly matters and that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, why then did God give the law to Moses and to the people of Israel? And Paul says here, it's to show them their sin. So then he anticipates the next question in verse 21. Okay, well, if that's the case, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Paul says, I know what you're thinking right now. You think you have me trapped. You think you have me trapped saying that it's by faith and that the law is not really all that important. So then if God gave both the previous covenant and God gave the covenant to Moses, then God has a problem. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? If you notice what he's doing here, he's trying to turn this argument that the Judaizers were making and saying, is God then at war within himself? Is God saying to one person, you can be saved by grace through faith, and saying to another person, you have to perform all the law perfectly? 
Is God at war in between himself? And of course, his response in the second part of verse 21, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So if the law could save us from our sin, then there has to be some law out there that if we just keep that law, we can be saved from our sins. And Paul says here, that law doesn't exist. And it's not because the law of God is wrong in any way. It shows his character. It shows his perfection. It shows his standard. The issue is not the law, Paul saying. The issue is us. We can't keep the law perfectly. So he says in verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law functioned as our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified, not by the law, but by faith. So Paul holds these two up in contrast. He holds Abraham and Moses. He holds faith and the law. And he says here, the covenant of Abraham is a covenant of faith. Well, then there's a covenant to Moses to keep the law. Is it not important? No, it's very important because it shows us that we are utterly dependent on someone other than ourselves to save us. So he says here, Verse 25, and if you want to see the third verses here, it's heirs versus slaves. Notice what he says in verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Look back at verse 22, he said that the law imprisons everything under it. So he says that you were a slave at that point. That if you were trying to fulfill the price, that if you were trying to save yourself, you were simply a slave to the law. You were imprisoned under it. But he says here, that's no longer the case. We're no longer under a guardian if you're a follower of Jesus. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. You go from being slaves to the law to being a son or a daughter of God. You trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. That is the transition that takes place in your life from being under the weight of trying to follow the law and save yourself to under the grace of God where you are no longer considered an enemy of God, but you are a child of God. On what basis? Not you, but what Christ has done for you. So he says here, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Judaizers had come in and they tried to divide the believers here on the basis of race, on the basis of ethnicity. And Paul makes this argument to them. Because of what Christ has done for you, 
ethnicity falls by the wayside when you recognize that you are both one in Christ. Doesn't mean that God hasn't created each of us differently, that we have different backgrounds, expectations, and that we have different ethnicities and races. Those things are important. But Paul says here, we don't divide over those things. Those things pale in comparison to who we are in Christ. So that in Christ, we don't identify ourselves primarily by that. We identify ourselves primarily by what Christ has done in our lives. We are His children. Verse 29, if you are Christ's, here's where the point comes together. Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The same promise, the same covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that a Messiah was coming and that trusting that God was going to fulfill His promise is what saved Abraham is the same as us. We simply look in the rearview mirror backwards at what Christ has done for us, but we join Abraham in belief that the Messiah is the only way to be saved from our sins and brought in to the family of God. I want to encourage you to bow your heads and Close your eyes with me this morning and we have an opportunity to reflect on the text and to respond. There's a couple of questions I want you to reflect on this morning. One, I don't want to make the assumption that every single one of us in this room have taken the step of trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation. So you may have come in today and you have thought that you could be saved from your sin. You could be in right relationship with God on the basis of what you do. But this morning you have seen that it doesn't work that way. You can't be saved from your sin on the basis of your good works. In fact, your good works, the Bible tells us, is filthy rags before the righteousness of God. The only hope that you have is someone to live a perfect life on your behalf. As we're reminded this morning, that person is Jesus. The Messiah that Abraham looked and longed for The Savior that we look back and recognize has come. Has died on the cross for our sin and raised again on the third day. So that you can be forgiven of your sins on the basis of what Christ has done for you. It is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. So maybe for you this morning, you need to take the step of trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus this morning. You have taken that step. But you're still living in doubt, still living in wonder, still not sure what God thinks about you. Maybe you're exhausted trying to measure up, trying to keep the checklist. And yet this morning the Lord says to you, 
You're my child. You're accepted on the basis not of what you do or what you did this past week, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ did for you 2,000 years ago. Maybe this morning for you, you need to rest in that. Claim that. Maybe for you today, as a follower of Jesus, for the first time in a long time, you can take Jesus at His word and come to Him because you've been burdened and heavy laden and He will give you rest. Father, we thank You for Your word. We thank You once again for the great reminder of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, help those that are in this room that have never taken the step of trusting Jesus as their Savior to take that step today. Help the believer here who's exhausted and worn out to recognize that you accept them on the basis of what Christ has done in their life. That as they seek to live out the Christian life, they live it out on the basis of already having been accepted by you. God, free us with that truth this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and would you sing? Myself, Pastor Aaron's down front. If you need to pray with someone, we'd love to help you this morning, pray for you, encourage you. If you need to take the step of trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, we'd love to help you take that step as well. You respond as the Lord leads.